This is a true story. To find out what happens, what happens? when people stop being polite. Start getting. <laughs> Welcome, 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 everybody, to another episode of The Real World. And today, uh, I have a really good guest. And what kind of separates this gentleman is the industry that he's in. Uh, he has a wicked jump shot, real smooth brother, um, listens to a lot of jazz. But I got my buddy Nasir in here. Darrell, thank you so much, man, for having me. Um, I missed our time on the basketball court. It's, it's coming back soon. It's coming back soon. <laughs> Now that, we're, now that we're vaccinated and the world seems to be opening up a bit, um, well, we're, we're getting around it, you know, figuring out what this normalcy look like. But I'm excited about this conversation. Uh, we've been talking about this for some time, and um, I'm just excited you're, you know, for you to offer this space to, to share. I am really excited that we have a person that looks like us in the space that you're in. And so while we certainly are sort of talking around something, um, Nas, as we call him, is a venture capitalist. Um, he specifically works in spaces where he's trying to provide capital to black and brown people and women and minorities. And I thought that was really dope. One, you know, I've seen you make the transition from big corporation to working with other people and then with yourself with Zeal. Let's sort of talk about that journey and how you even got involved into that industry. Absolutely. So first of all, representation matters. You're right. And I have been blessed. And, um, you know, one of my favorite quotes is to uh, is you know, recognizing your um, recognizing that we didn't get here alone. And so I give credit first and foremost to my mother, to my mentors and really, really those who those they really shape my thinking as it related to my career trajectory and just opportunity in general but um i'm from atlanta georgia born and raised i'm the oldest of three went through about five nonprofits. i am a first generation college graduate that makes uh, this even more impressive, if I'm honest. And I, I'm not blowing, you know, smoke up your proverbial beep. But <laughs> the fact that you're the first doing this, yeah. that's that's dope, man. Yeah, people talk about the American dream. And I, I've always felt while a lot of us feel like the American dream is out of reach, the best indicator of that are first-generation college graduates, those who are climbing a ladder that no one around them has ever climbed before, but with a great load of help. And I never will um, discount uh, the amount of help that I've had uh, dating back to uh, high school and going to boarding school and then going to an HBCU, which I think is relevant to this conversation, especially as you think about those who are in my shoes, who are venture capitalists. Most come from Ivy League and an additional maybe a couple more schools like Stanford and I mean, the West, sure, right, right, or Duke, or all great schools. Nothing wrong with that, but um, yeah, you know, talent we know is is everywhere, but unfortunately, opportunity access to great opportunity is not. It's not evenly distributed, and so at Hampton, played a little basketball. I uh, 
I was class president as well. I was on the debate team um, and had some excellent internships along the way that really positioned me to un get a sense of what post-college could look like. And a lot of, like a lot of us, you know, we see our, our friends who, who graduated ahead of us, in my case, coming back from New York City and working on Wall Street. And on the one hand, I was, ex I was thrilled to learn about the stories and their experiences, but also the personal capital that they've been able to, to, to gain in such a short amount of time. And so I felt like, you know, starting my career in the public markets on Wall Street, more specifically, was the best, um, the best, the best start of 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 this quote unquote economic mobility pathway. So okay. I'll I'll go I guess like in two separate directions with this. But first, um, I feel like I always talk about a story myself where I went to the University of Maryland. Mm -hmm. um, my great grandmother legitimately used to clean the bathrooms of the dorm that I stayed at as a sophomore. Mm -hmm. Thinking about in two generations how it went from just the same with your story where that wasn't a thing to, you know, you're the quote unquote help to now you're, you know, your grandchild or your great grandchild is here really doing something different. And it's that uh, opportunity that I'm, I guess I'm really fortunate that I also shared where mm -hmm. a bunch of people invested in me. It wasn't just black people. You know, I love my people, but it was also teachers that saw something and said, hey, we're going to push this kid to do more Absolutely. just to make sure that he has opportunity. So that's one. Um, the second one, I had no idea that you lived in New York for a while. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That would make a lot of sense kind of, you know, from a connection standpoint, but certainly please expound on that because Living in New York is a uh, you getting out of school is tough because it's really expensive. Uh, you're from the South, and so even though Atlanta is a major metropolitan area, it's not New York. So yeah. now you're on the subway everywhere. I'm assuming you didn't live in you probably didn't live in Manhattan because it was really expensive. I'm assuming you either lived in like Brooklyn or like Queens or something. Yeah. Took the train a long way. Yeah. So yeah, let's little you know dig into that a little. Yeah, or or you just had a lot of roommates that, yeah. that helped you supplement the rent. Um, I um. You know, you know, moving to New York was, it was, I, it, I felt like opportunity was everywhere. You were in this cosmopolitan city, sort of like D.C. People are coming to New York from all walks of life, different cultures. Um, it's just a hotbed of, of cultures, and I love that. And But you also... Um, learn the soft skill of hustle and you know just being quick on your feet and this idea of no pun intended we'll get there later but having zeal about you know your your purpose and I, see I, um, I did um, you know started my career at Goldman Sachs really set the tone um, in, 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 in a form of just getting the best professional development and access to smart bankers, particularly black bankers, I, I, I befriended and became my mentor and I gained a, a, a deep relationship with them. Um, so having them uh, uh, alongside of my career early allowed me to really gain a sense of, you know, what, again, options could be next, whether it be business school or entrepreneurial activity. Um, I really started thinking about, but what was most important about, I would say, the, the, my time in the financial services, because 
it was Goldman Sachs, and then I moved to Boston for about four years at State Street Bank. Um, so both of those shops, I was on, I was in the public markets as a as a sales trader, um, uh, where I cut my teeth, learned uh, learned investments, learned deal making. You know, my, my investment acumen really um, was shaped um, across those two shops. But um, but what was important to me um, deep down from a values perspective, D was um, mission driven work the ability to invest in people, um, particularly the most vulnerable in, in unfortunate cases, our community, black community, Latinx, indigenous, and, and, and viewing it as also a market opportunity as I think about um, how much our culture influences the broader globe, and, 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 and how unfortunately our creativity and our entrepreneurial mindset and ideas do not, um, are not represented in the marketplace, right? As a means, and, 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 that, and, the, and the ability to do so, um, the, the ability that, that allows those, these black and Latinx indigenous entrepreneurs to do so is capital. And so really started to think about, all right, I've gained some in-depth some, some in experience. I've built some meaningful relationships. I have my eyes on a few sectors that are also social mission-driven sectors like education and financial inclusion and health care access and the role that small businesses play to build new innovation, particularly, uh, more specifically, technology-enabled innovations across those three sectors that I always felt um, directly uh, uh, correlated to triple charge and economic mobility across the country. And, and so while that was very vague at that point, um, coincidentally, how I got into venture capital was opening up a coffee shop in New York. And it was, it was back in 2011. I didn't know that either. And again, yeah. like, I legitimately met Nas. We lived in the same building. Yeah. We played basketball together. <laughs> now it's making your yeah. story more interesting. Like, who decides? One, that's I don't want to fight the the eight hundred pound gorilla called Starbucks. Yeah. yeah, you decided to open a coffee shop in New York. Yeah, wow. You know, coffee shops today and how we thought about it then are is the hot is the the hotbed of community. It's it's where it's the intersection of where you see everyone in the community. And if you date back like 30, 40, when our parents were growing up, well, I don't think coffee shops was, maybe it might've been the cleaners or might've been the diner. But in this case, we, we recognize the, um, how, you know, the, the, the broader meaning of what, you know, of, of a coffee shop. It was, and for us, it was also an incubator. We attracted a great deal of entrepreneurs. Those entrepreneurs were also having these one-on-ones with investors. Um, we were, on a fun note, we actually, um, I was one of three owners, we were, we had our own latte. Um, and both of the, all three lattes were named after us. My, my, my latte was named the Hotness Seer. I'll never forget it. It was um, a splash of, um, a splash of espresso, mocha, 
um, a little bit of cinnamon and in, in, in you know your choice if you want some whipped cream on top. But that, but the hotness here, you can look it up. It was actually the the, the, the best selling latte. The best selling latte. Out of, out of I'm mad us. that you had a coffee shop in New York and you didn't have a play on Illmatic or it was written because. That's- like again you shared like a name with somebody that's really really famous yeah. and from New York I would have been like oh it's not because of him but like hey I'm inspired by this my yeah. name is also Nasir I would have ran with it but clearly you made the better decision than I did you know I've always I've always wanted to and I and, and Nas Nasir Jones my namesake is 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 by far one of my favorite hip-hop artists hands down not only do we share the same name, our day, our birthdays are one day apart. Oh wow! Um, okay. You know, we we both got a mole on our left cheek, and um, and you know, you know, just like little things. And I just, I think his his the way he carries himself is very similar to to and, and totally in the way we view the world. Totally is very similar. So I, at some point, now he's a venture capitalist too, and I feel like I have just as much experience actually in venture as he does. So there is a point. I feel like. They can be a value and a, a strategic and value add in terms of how him and I can both work together, but um, we'll co co invest together. But the coffee shop was also where I met um, two incredible mentors um, that were frequent at the coffee shop, who are very well known investors, and they took me underneath their wing and showed introduced me to the private markets more specifically venture capital, more specifically uh, impact investing, and even more specifically education technology. I uh, was at that point was already playing as one fit in, one fit out, sitting on a few nonprofit boards, just wanted, it was a way to you know learn about the challenges that were happening from an education um, quality, um, opportunity to, uh, achievement perspective. Um, and, and more specifically, the role that entrepreneur, education entrepreneurs are playing to rethink um, uh, or add more resources to the classroom, to the university, and even as, a, as we thought about innovation in the workforce, so the future work sector. And so uh, to fast forward, we ended up selling the coffee shop at a pretty, pretty profitable call. So you, this crazy experience of traditional Wall Street financial services experience, entrepreneurial experience. And now I'm getting into Civic. I meet Cory Booker through a mutual friend experience. It's 2012, doing a special run for Senate, uh, special run for Senate after one of the late senators passed. And I uh, volunteered on his, uh, on his campaign as a co-chair of his innovation technology committee, essentially helping him better, better message the importance of technology across low wealth communities like Passaic, Newark, Trenton, New Jersey. Um, yeah, former governor, of, not governor, former mayor of Newark. I've been a big fan of Cory Booker's for a long time. Um, sort of around the time when Twitter became mm-hmm. popular and yeah. he was sort of the superhero when you would tweet at him, hey, we're sending people to deal with whatever the, the issue was. Let's move. Hashtag let's move. Yeah, like I thought that was super innovative at the time and that's like, hey, this guy's going to be something. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the, the Senate seat comes open and he mm-hmm. runs for the Senate. He wins that. I actually saw him on a similar trajectory to, honestly, like um, Barack Obama Absolutely. at a certain point. And I get it that people may not see that form, but I'm like, man, this guy, he knows his stuff and he yeah. seems like a really good guy. Yeah, Corey's my guy and I, and I, I wholeheartedly believe while he ran an unsuccessful presidential campaign, I, I think his 
his his his his political future remains bright. Um, just you know, make sure you know he he builds the right campaign team, a better, sure, a bit better campaign team. But um, it's, you know that was a brief experience in Newark, and then his former deputy mayor Stephen Pryor um, became the commissioner of education in Connecticut. And then Stephen Pryor, um, and fast forward today, Stephen Pryor is the Secretary of Commerce for Rhode Island, who I believe will run for governor of Rhode Island at some point, or even, I'm surprised Biden didn't pick him for um, some form of cabinet seat um, or, or agency league, but I know they're still, um, high, you know, they're still appointing um, leads across different agencies, but, um, but I, I, I I, at this point, I, I am beginning to really explore civic and just, you know, enjoy that experience. And um, I was also the senior advisor to former Governor Dan Malloy of, of Connecticut and essentially leading the state's digital learning and infrastructure strategy. A, um, thinking thoughtfully about ensuring that every uh, uh, district, school district particularly, um, and city has high-speed internet access. Um, and then B, uh, bringing to the forefront uh, new innovative tools across K-12, post-secondary, and the workforce. And so, I, I, you know, I'm an angel investor at this point. I'm also, um, you know, leading important initiatives. So, explain what an angel investor is for the average person, because. I'm not sure that people totally understand where they think, oh, it's just this money that sort of appears from this guy and they don't want anything from it. But I certainly think that there's a, you know, an educational component to yeah. this entire conversation that for people who, you know, maybe you're building something, maybe there's something you want to do. Right, right. How are you able to get capital if you don't exactly know what you're looking for? Yeah, yeah so an angel investor is um, an individual who manages his or her own capital. They're, they are essentially accredited investor. Uh, essentially, uh, yeah, I think today, accredited investor is defined as one who has a annual income of $250,000, or uh, if you're um, in a you know, dual, um, dual partnership or you know, uh, you know, two people, it's $350,000, and your net worth is and are equal to a million dollars. Um, and so that, that's your, that's a, and so an angel investor is a given that you're not managing someone else's money, you're not an institutional investor, you're, 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 you're investing in ideas, you know, companies, uh, you're investing in funds as well. And you're writing, typically you're writing small checks. You're, 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 you're coming in at a very pre-seed. Sometimes depending on how, uh, how, how liquid you are, you can, you can make investments in, in later rounds, but uh, most angel investors tend to uh, inject personal capital um, into early, early stage companies um, at the pre-seed, pre-product, betting on the founder um, stage. And so I was um, putting very, writing very small checks to, um, to early stage entrepreneurs who I was uh, really getting excited about and felt that at some point in their life cycle, it, this company could possibly take off. Um, and it's, it's high risk, high reward, as you can imagine. But um, it's a great way to, um, it's a great way to, 
it's a great way to, um, to, to start building out a track record. Um, and so, so, I, so I only stayed in government in Connecticut for a year and a half or so, and I enjoyed it. And um, my name was put in a hat to uh, come move to DC to join a early stage venture capital fund to become their global head of education. Um, um, investment portfolio called Village Capital and that's where I started my career in venture. Um, I was again I was getting I was getting mentored and putting some personal capital to work uh, I had uh, I was leaning in having lots of coffees and you know jumping on uh, you know, just just being a sponge, going to different conferences, learning about the space. So that was going to be the thing that I think I took away from everything that you just said. I think it was that you were willing to sort of make connections your full-time job. Yeah, you have to. Um, you have to. And it, it yields why I felt comfortable starting Zeal. You know, those relationships don't come overnight. And I think I, I, if I haven't had um, the most, that, that's been the top conversation I've had with friends is that, wow, he, he's been able to raise all this money so quickly, or he's, uh, what gave him the confidence to feel like he could start a venture capital fund by himself? Um, well, you know, people, people see the, um, people see the glory, but they don't know the story, you know, and, um, sometimes it's difficult or in many cases, you just don't have a lot of time to sit down with people and walk them through like we're doing today, of how the heck did you feel confident enough without imposter syndrome to to start your own fund? Well, one, I, I see how you play on the basketball court. So I know you have confidence. Uh, you'll take some shots and we're like, what is he doing? Oh, okay, went out. Um, but I think it's really important for both young people and people, frankly, that are in our age range to understand sort of what networking means. Mm -hmm. um, I think about it as a person myself. Uh, when I say a lot of great things have happened in my life just because of basketball, mm -hmm. I mean great things. Uh, as a 17-year-old kid uh, in PG County, Maryland, mm -hmm. uh, I was selected to be a state page. Mm -hmm. um, so that meant I went to Annapolis for two weeks uh, you know, you're running around essentially the state house doing mm -hmm. whatever they ask of you, but you get the chance to uh, build relationships mm -hmm. with legislators mm -hmm. directly. I specifically had a legislator. Uh, his name was Congressman Oaks. We're not mm -hmm. Congressman, but Delegate Oaks. Mm -hmm. He was from Baltimore. Uh, when I say that this gentleman took me under his wing and introduced me to everyone, mm -hmm. he did this with everyone. Uh, there were people in business. Um, it's like, hey, this is my young kid. You know, he's from PG County. He's going to come to lunch with us just because he's soaking up this stuff and sort of being a sponge. Mm -hmm. uh, playing basketball with the, the younger, uh, again, uh, mm -hmm. legislative uh, members. These are the things that I was exposed to literally as a kid. So I realized whether it's, to your example, the coffee shop is where things happen, relationships happen at various stages. Absolutely. Figure out what works for you, and then, you know, obviously, I think it's a good idea to make a move on it. Absolutely. It's one of the reasons we're having a conversation now. It's just like, nah, seems like a good guy. Mm -hmm. like, know nothing about him, didn't know his story. 
and you were from Atlanta just obviously through conversations. Yeah. And then it's like you start seeing the trajectory of people and the things they do. And it's like, oh, wow, this is cool. That'd be something great to highlight. Mm-hmm. And again, to your point, it takes time. You build up, you know. I wouldn't have said this if I had met you one time. Absolutely. But Absolutely. it's after years, it's like, no, he's a really good guy. I think this is something that we should highlight. And I think that's the sort of work that I want to impart to other people. Mm-hmm. Where to your point, mm-hmm. I think that you always have to be working in an industry like yours. Absolutely. And, and you got, it's important how you, that's a great point. But it, you know, first of all, every interaction is an opportunity and 100% agree. You know, and I, and I think that is how how a lot of us should treat whether you're you're in a pantry, coffee shop, or you know, just push yourself to ask questions. Push yourself to because it can yield you being be, it can yield it can yield you expanding your lens to other areas that if you didn't ask that question, if you did not. Um, yeah, you, you wouldn't, you probably wouldn't be exposed to this new area. The best piece of advice I ever heard was from my grandfather. What do you say? Treat everyone with kindness. Speak to everyone. You never know just based on appearance who a person is. Absolutely. Who they're yeah. connected to. And so just random acts of kindness will lead to really great results. Absolutely. Um, to your point, I mean... Most people don't look like venture capitalists. If I if I look at you, I'm like, okay, he's mm-hmm. a black guy. Mm-hmm. I, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know what that means. Just a black guy. You have no idea what your industry yeah. is, and so and then by talking to you, it's like, oh wow, these are really cool things that he's doing, and vice versa. You know, like mm-hmm. I work in consulting. Again, you don't you look at me. I have on a hoodie, mm-hmm. some basketball shorts. Mm-hmm. I don't come across as the typical consultant. But then you have a conversation and it's like, oh, wow, I could actually go to this person. You know, maybe he can help my child get a job. Mm-hmm. I got plenty of those kind of things where it's, you know, hey, take a look at my resume. See if it's something that you can do, you know, in, mm-hmm. in your field. Sure. Just because, again, being people being nice. Right. So you want to help them. That's right. That's right. I um, no, I, I could not be more excited um, to be in the position that I am now, you know, over the past six years. The, I've been able to build an incredible track record across two funds, uh, being Village Capital um, and AT&T. Most recently, I think you, you, you alluded to my time in the corporate where I led their $400 million uh, social investment fund. And it was, uh, it was great, but you know, I also did not uh, have the type of autonomy um, that I would like. And... Uh, you know, you also, again, when you're in this space and you're on the side of injecting capital into entrepreneurs, you just see how much capital is being left on the table when we don't invest in people that look like you, that look like you and I. And, you know, I think that's, I think that's wrong and, and quite frankly, um, doesn't uh, add value in, 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 as we think about growing our country, you know, from an economic mobility perspective. So I, um, you know, I, 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 I'm a big, I'm a big believer where, where we are, um, how we think, how we're thinking about the world today at Zeal. And I couldn't be more excited to, to launch Zeal, um, as it almost a year ago today, actually. I feel like I learned about it on LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, 
and it came across because I knew you had left AT&T and went, you were working on the West Coast a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, because you were like, hey, I'm going to be in Seattle. I'm going to check out our boy Royce. Yeah. You know, yeah. like I'll spend a lot of time in Seattle and San Fran. And we had a long conversation about it. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay. And then it popped up and it was just like this new thing. Mm -hmm. um, I forget your title, but your it basically your title was, hey, you know. I am Mark Zuckerberg. I am, you know, in charge, whatever. Yeah. Like, and I read that. And I'm like, oh wow. So he went out on his own. Yeah. What led you to the process to decide? You know what? Mm -hmm. Now was the right time. Yeah. Um, I have the resources. Like, yeah. how did all of that sort of yeah. fit in I'll, your timeline? I'll, I'll share a, a tangible, um, and very specific um, story, um, and then what led me to launching Zeal. Uh, two of my biggest mentors. Uh, uh, our, you know, uh, we had dinner at the Hamilton here in D.C. And they uh, are also two huge philanthropic supporters running these marathons around the country to, to raise 51 marathons to be exact, to raise a million dollars for first-generation college graduates. And um, Are these gentlemen black? Uh, they're not. They're okay. not. Uh, I, well, actually, I'm sorry. One is, and the other is a white Jewish guy. Okay. Um, but they um, are two, uh, one's a huge private equity giant, the other's a, uh, ran a Fortune 10 company. Um, and really have been you know, supportive through me throughout my, throughout my career, but also uh, supporting me philanthropically on the, running these marathons to support first-generation college graduates um, via American Nature, and uh, which is a nonprofit um, based out of New York that, I, that I'm a big champion of. And um, one of them says, you know, Nasir, you know, you talk a lot about democratizing entrepreneurship and access to capital. You have a top quartile track record. You're 34 years old at the time. Um, why don't you start your own, your own, your own, your own fund? Um, and at that point, I, I knew I wanted to start my own venture fund, uh, you know, when I was probably in my mid-40s. But I didn't think about, I didn't think I was ready to start my venture fund that point. Um, but the more I thought about it, the more I looked at my track record, the more I, I, I understood my my reputation in the industry uh, at that time, um, the more I, I, I uh, really gained a sense of the different gaps that continue to persist um, across the venture capital space um, and how I could uh, build a strategy that's differentiated um, compared to other venture capital firms. I felt at that point, why not now, right? Why not now? And so I said, I'm going to market map, um, do a deep dive for about eight months before I go into market. This is pre-COVID, pre-social unrest, pre-quote-unquote economic downturn, and focus on two sectors that on the one hand, align with my competency. It's, it's two spaces that I've been, been investing in for the past six, seven years. And also thinking about it from a social outcomes perspective, wealth and skills. And so, and I, and I recognize that there's not one venture capital fund that's specifically focusing on leveraging the financial technology, financial inclusion sector in the future of work sector as it relates to investing in solutions 
that's focusing on bridging our country's wealth and skills gap that I believe turbocharges economic mobility. And so I went back to them, I said, I said, um, you know, I think you're right, I am ready. And the crux of Zeal Capital Partners, Zeal is my favorite word. It's, it's how I move, it's how, it's, it's, what I, it's, what I, it's what I get excited about in founders and even especially teammates. And that is um, a fun, a $50 million fund, target, $100 million hard cap that will partner with exceptional, diverse management teams that are rethinking the building blocks of wealth from education to employment to financial wellness that we believe turbocharges economic mobility, making investments in the fintech and future work sectors. And that, um, and to date we've done great. You know, we've, you know, after spending, after market mapping over the past eight months, 10 to eight months, I mean, eight to 10 months, um, we're investing in companies that are, you know, rethinking alternative pathways to education outside of two and four year degrees. You know, on the FinTech side, rethinking FICO scores. Hold that for one, that thought for one second. Because there seems to be a big wave now, and I think this is an opportunity to sort of talk about it, where you have this big push against colleges because they seem to be so profit-driven, and kids are, of course, coming out of school and graduating with massive amounts of debt. Some of our most famous entrepreneurs did not finish college. Mm -hmm. You have the Mark Zuckerbergs, you have the Bill Gates. And so it's not necessarily that you know you need to go an industry route where, of course, you're in athletics or entertainment, but you can certainly do things that impact the world. Yeah. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah. Because I don't think that everyone is, I don't think college is for everyone, but I believe that everyone should go to college for the experience, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, there are kids that you know aren't great at school, they're not good test takers, but I think yeah. the experience that you get of being in college sort of opens your mind and changes so much about you as a person, yeah. and that a lot of times when you miss that, it's something you can't ever get. It's like a gap that's always there. Yeah. My little cousin was, we'll call that cat. <laughs> it's like, that's cat, uh, which I've, I've, I've never, uh, it's actually probably the first time I've used it publicly, but um, but yeah. it sounded a little difficult, but it's okay. It's a it's a lie. Like we get what they're saying. Exactly. I'm like what? Um, but no, I I I'm with you. I I don't think um, college is for everyone. I think a um, there are alternative opportunities to gain a skill set in which um, employers will. Um, even go to whether it's a coding boot camp or it's apprenticeship. Um, you, you, there, there are, and there, there are lower expense um, models and opportunities for um, for for graduate for for high school graduates, and because the cost of higher ed is not decreasing anytime soon. And so mommy and daddy and student are are are, are expanding their lens as they think about different options. But to your point, there is a, a huge value proposition, competitive advantage um, that you that you get, that you will not get um, in these other alternative post-secondary opportunities. When you go to a four-year school, 
You know, unfortunately, going to a four-year school today, given the cost, is a luxury. It is a luxury to be able to have that four-year experience, especially um, if you uh, do not have a scholarship, right? And so uh, there are just so many structural barriers that unfortunately getting back to our people, black people, Latinx, indigenous, um, that has, does not afford them, the op, does not afford us the opportunity to um, have higher ed as an option unless we get scholarship because of a lot of our um, in terms of the families and the economic status we, you know, we have. So that, that's, that's difficult. So I'll give you a, a quick antidote. Um, my mom, career secretary, uh, worked for the federal government for, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. 35, 40 years. Uh, never made more than like $40,000. Um, it was just her and I. Uh, obviously, you know, money spent a little different. Mm-hmm. But that's not a lot of money to essentially raise a family on. Mm-hmm. Um, I get out of school. Uh, I am one of the kids where I wanted to work on the Hill. I thought that, you know, I wanted to be a lobbyist. This is all that I want to do. I used to drop my resume off down at the resume bank at both the House office buildings and the Senate office buildings. One day I get a phone call. Um, the woman on the line says, hey, mm-hmm. Joe Biden's office is looking for someone. Cool. We'd like for you to come in an interview. Even better. Cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, what makes this interesting is mm-hmm. his chief of staff is who I was supposed to interview with. Mm-hmm. They canceled or rescheduled the interview, I believe, five times. Yeah, as you look at me, what? five times. Um, and this is, I swear to God, on, on my dead grandmother, who I love a lot, it's a true story. Uh... The, but I think by the fifth time when they said, hey, um, you know, we'd like for you to come in again. Mm-hmm. I just accept, uh, accepted a job. I was working. It was my first day of work. But at my job, I only had to wear, you know, slack shirt. I wore a tie because that's just the kind of guy that I am. Mm-hmm. But I didn't have on a suit mm-hmm. because I didn't mm-hmm. have to. Mm-hmm. So I leave my new job early mm-hmm. because this is me. Hey, this is all I've ever wanted to do. I want to work on the Hill. Um so I go. Mm-hmm. First thing the gentleman says to me is, you don't have on a jacket. Now, what actually upset me about this, the gentleman had on a polo shirt, some jeans, and you know, some brown shoes. So in comparison, I was dressed much nicer than he was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we had a great conversation and I remember them saying, hey, you know, okay, um, we like you. Uh, will let you know they offered me the position as a legislative correspondent working in and I'm not sure which Senate office it was but it was you know because they have different offices for different Mm -hmm. things I would have been paid roughly $24,000 now to your point black kid who lives just got out of school Mm -hmm. um, I don't have parents that can supplement me working for $24,000 I did not take that job because of that. The, the job that I was currently working in, I was making fifty-two thousand mm-hmm. dollars as my first job. So you wanted me to take half of that, you know, again and work at that. Mm-hmm. These are the opportunities that I specifically look at a lot of times, where people that look like us, 
we're not afforded these opportunities because I can't take the risk right. of working for less. Right, right, right. And that goes into your story about college. And that's why right. I thought it was really poignant because you're saying kids can't take the risk of, you know, eighty, a $100,000 in debt mm-hmm. without having some sort of support because their parents yeah. can't afford it. Yeah. That's like we're like, a crazy place right now. Like how we think about good, bad credit is 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 out of this world like you know you go to college unfortunately you have to take out a student loan so you can finish college for a lot of us and you come out in debt and couple that you may be underemployed you may not be working in a capacity that aligns with what your what you made what you studied in college that also happens for those who tend to go to grad school too. How many lawyers aren't making the, you know, two hundred and fifty, three hundred thousand dollars that they thought they were gonna make a big law? More that are. Yeah, more it's more lawyers that do not make yeah. that kind of money than the ones that are. Exactly. But we only think of the corporate law, hey, you know, mm-hmm. you have a great job, they'll be fine. No. Mm-hmm. So when you have these law schools that are again 60, 70, mm-hmm. 100 grand a year, and you got to go for three years, mm-hmm. you don't even have the ability to pay back the loan that you got. So true. So true. So I think it's cool that, you know, frankly, you're trying to sort of figure out the gaps between all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, before we wrap up, sort of tell me uh what specifically zeal is doing sure to sort of like meld all of these things together yeah so what we know what we hear often is where capital has gone historically geographically 80 percent of capital here in the u.s goes to three places massachusetts new york and california yeah i was gonna say san fran probably yeah right Mm -hmm. 80% while you have the remaining 47 in D.C., 47 other states in D.C. fighting over the remaining 20%. We also know that less than 5%, less than 3%, excuse me, of capital is allocated to women and people of color, Latinx as well. Well, people of color, including Latinx and African Americans. But what we don't spend a lot of time is specific strategies. What are specific strategies that, unrecognizing that there's no cookie cutter approach to this, but at least give us a, a sense of how can we level the playing field so that we're casting a wider net and truly recognizing the breadth, the depth of innovation across our country. I'm just primarily talking about the US here. One can argue this same concept in globally as well, particularly emerging markets. And so what I'm what I'm posing and how we think about it at Zeal is to bring to execute a new investment discipline that we've coined inclusive investing. Inclusive investing is a five-pronged market-backed approach that allows us to widen our lens and further level the playing field um, for more founders, particularly underrepresented founders and women to get a fair swing to play to capital, but also best positions these companies to outperform. 
The five-prong approach is A, we ourselves are diverse fund managers. When your team is diverse, you will organically do what? Back more underrepresented and women entrepreneurs. Sure. We know that there is a $4.4 trillion missing opportunity when we're not backing women and people of color. 70 trillion under management today. Only 1.3% looks like you and I and women. Bucket number three is our geographic inclusivity. Recognizing that when we over-index our allocation, when we earmark our traveling dollars into these secondary markets like Detroit, here in our hometown in DC, in Nashville, in Denver, in Austin, in Atlanta, in Miami, outside of those three hotbeds I, I, I focused on, we will that will that itself will yield a more diverse pipeline of entrepreneurs in a in a in a in a, in a clearer sense of where innovation is not just coming from very few places back in the same people graduates of the same on average Ivy League schools and a few other schools the fourth is our currency what are we investing in and that's the future of work in fintech some can take this model this 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 strategy and, and sub put in another sector but for us it's future of work and and um, and fintech the fifth is impact. I believe the future of investing is backing painkiller problems, not vitamins. Vitamins are nice to have. Painkillers are businesses we actually need. We don't need another food delivery or a beauty supply. Nothing wrong with those. Books, sure, but, but it's, they're nice to have. Right. And it's oversaturated. It's oversaturated. Both markets are oversaturated. But what's a painkiller problem is how we think about inject it, building solutions for workers to remain to remain competitive in today and tomorrow's workforce. As what's, what's important is painkillers like rethinking FICO scores, um, you know, thinking about credit access expansion for the un and underbanked consumer. Um, and that's what we're investing in. That, 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 that's the impact as we think about tracking impact and, and, and building out impact framework that allows us to say, you know what? This inclusive investing strategy allows us to you know, achieve our alpha, a forex net, forex return on our capital, but also uh, the ability to have impact in the world. And I'm excited about bringing this investment discipline to market. I remain excited about the founders in which we're partnering with as we think about the future of investing, the future of venture capital, it is this concept of to whom much is given, much is required. Mentorship, training the next generation of investors, particularly those that look like us and women, is how we're going to move the needle. And I think what's exciting is that you're seeing a number of organizations who, particularly uh, black uh, organizations, Latinx organizations that are training students as young as high school, college, um, you know, exposing them to the private market, exposing them to, to, to venture capital, private equity. That's exciting. And so hopefully, you know, one per, you know, black and Latinx VCs don't just represent 1% in 10 years, but God willing, you um, make some substantial inroads. And, 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 and we're, we're at 50%, I don't know. But I would more, love to see that more more investors to your to your early point at the top of this 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 podcast, you know, you know, don't 
just look like it, it's it's you 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 will have more investors to to see to learn from that look like myself. I got one final question for you, um, and this one's a little more fun. Mm -hmm. How does your mom describe what you do? <laughs> That's funny. It, it's changed. You know, she she would just keep it simple, like my baby on Wall Street. <laughs> As my yeah, my mom would just be like, oh, he travels for work. Travels you know. for work. Um, you know, mom is is you know, our parents are all about safety first and foremost, and. But um, I, I think she, she now, this is a bit simpler for her. Like she, he's like, he, su he supports or, or she, I, I encourage her not to use the word support, but he invests in entrepreneurs. Um, and he does that through his venture fund where he takes other, other people's capital, whom we, whom we call our limited partners. And he sees a market opportunity. She actually says that. And, you know, he can win, you know, if they win, his fun wins, and that's where that's where you know my son Nasir does well. But I I think she she gets she gets venture capital. She gets this idea that it's cool that you can go out and raise money. They believe in you based on your track record and your strategy and your ability to execute. You you know source invest in entre exceptional entrepreneurs. Those entrepreneurs go out and you know build a billion dollar enterprise and get either. You know, acquired by a large company or the IPO or a SPAC, and um, and that's 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 his life. That's what he. That's what my son does. I can't wait to see the day that I see you on the news because something that you invested in, either to your point, you know, you hit the Instagram where yeah. Facebook gives you a billion dollars for it, yeah. or it goes to IPO, and I'll say, hey, mm -hmm. I know he was in on that early. Yeah. Like, really proud of that guy yeah like, well, i can't wait you, to see that bless you so much and it's a um it's again it's a high risk high reward game here and i um it's exciting to to be one of the few venture black venture capitalists who um has his his own venture fund and i think you know you're we're, we're we'll see more capital in the hands of black entrepreneurs when more VC funds, black-led VC funds, are uh, getting funded. And so that's another data point that I'm excited to see increase. This well. is the only real trickle-down economics. Absolutely. If there's money at the top that looks like us, we can certainly provide it to people who, again, look like us at the bottom. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I want to wrap this up. Um, first off, thank you for having us. Course. I think that this is completely educational and it's great for people to hear. One, I think it's inspirational. So if somebody hears this, you know, maybe it motivates them to do something that they're really into. Uh, two, um, as you spoke, I can't wait for the world to open back up. We've all been safe. We can get back to playing basketball and living life. Uh, and three, I end every episode saying the same thing. Ball players on a rap, rappers on a ball. My name is Darrell of the Real World. And thank you guys. And we hope to see you next week. Peace.